All semester long, we're looking at the stories that Jesus told. And um, we have sort of looked at stories of a good world that has gone bad. Uh, we've looked at uh, stories of what God is doing about it, uh, how he is um, in the midst of the world uh, sowing good seed, preaching his word everywhere, going after lost sheep, uh, longing for his sons to be reconciled to him. Uh, and, uh, and now uh, we've come to a place where in some ways we're turning the corner. Um, we, we've turned the corner. We're asking this question, you know, what does it mean for us to be a part of what God is doing uh, in the midst of this uh, beautiful but broken, uh, now saved world, uh, now being saved world? Uh, how do we, what does our life look like as we enter into this kingdom and, and live it out? Uh, last week we saw, we, we talked a lot about love and, and Tonight, we're going to talk a whole lot about forgiveness. Um, if last week was the question, what does love look like in action? Uh, what does it mean for us to forgive? Jesus tells us a story uh, that I hope sheds um, some light on that for us. And that story is going to be found in Matthew 18, uh, verses 21 to 35. Uh, if you like, I've got some uh, sheets of paper with this printed on it, and, and you can write notes on it. It will also be thrown up here uh, on, on the screen. Here's the story that Jesus told. Okay. Peter, his disciple, came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. They went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and shouldn't not you have had mercy on your fellow servant, as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Let's pray. Jesus, we're grateful for these stories that you told us, the ways that you uh, engage with us and explain things to us. Lord, I pray um, that this truth... Um, the truths of the story would penetrate deep into our hearts uh, and it would elicit the right response. Uh, it would change us from the inside out, make us more forgiving. I pray these things in your name. Uh, amen. Bill, can one of you close that door? It's a little bit noisy. Um, thanks, Will. It's a little bit better. All right. Uh, as we look at these stories, I really uh, want to focus really on two things. Um, the sermon outline is pretty, pretty simple. The first point is that forgiveness costs you. In some ways, like last week, where we saw the costliness of love, that love costs you, but well, forgiveness does too. 
Okay, forgiveness costs you. And secondly, uh, forgiveness change, changes you. Uh, forgiveness changes you. At least it ought to. Okay, those are the two points. Forgiveness costs and forgiveness changes. Well, let's start uh, at the beginning uh, of this story. Okay, the story begins and we have a king uh, and a servant. Uh, somehow or, or another, this servant of the king has racked up a huge debt. You might ask, well, just how large is this debt? Well, the text says in verse 24 that it's 10,000 talents. Like, I have no idea what that is. What is a talent? Well, in Old Testament times, uh, a talent was worth approximately 6,000 denarii. Okay, you see that word denarii mentioned uh, later on in verse 28. Okay, but a, a denarii was a day's wage. If we wanted to bring this into this story into 2016, uh, you could think of it this way. A denarii, if you're making $15 an hour and you work eight hours a day, that comes out to $120, okay? So a denarii would be about $120, which means that a talent, which is 6,000 denarii, is $720,000, okay? That's one talent. This man doesn't owe just one talent. He doesn't owe just 10 talents. He has racked up a debt of 10,000 talents. Just say he owes this king $7.2 billion. Like how the heck did he get in that much debt? I don't know. The story doesn't say. That's not the point. The point is this guy owes the king massively, right? He has this incredibly large debt. Somebody did the math, somebody smarter than me, right? which is not saying a whole lot. There's plenty of people who are smarter than me. But he, they found out that in order to pay this debt, you would essentially have to work every single day of your life for 164,000 years before you could pay off that debt. If you worked $15 an hour, eight hours a day, it would take you 164,000 years to pay off that kind of debt. Okay, in other words, this man is hit with an impossibly burdensome debt. There is no possible way he can pay it off. Uh, He has gotten himself into a hole that he simply cannot climb out of. What is the king going to do? Uh, The king uh, is well uh, within his rights uh, to sell him into slavery, to sell his family into slavery, to liquidate his assets, like sell off this guy's baseball card collection and be like, look, something's better than nothing. I mean, I, like, I know it's $7.2 billion, but like, maybe I could get at least some of this back. And he's well within his rights to do that. But that's not what happens, right? In the end, the guy, the servant, he doesn't get justice. Uh, in the end, he is the recipient of grace. Undeserved mercy the man uh, begs the king. If you go and, and we jump to um, verse 26. Okay, this servant, he falls on his knees and he implores the king, please, my please, be patient with me and I will pay you back everything. It's funny that even in this late hour, uh, he doesn't fully get it. He thinks that 
if only the king's patient with me, I can still pay this off. I can pay down this incredibly large debt. Well, no, he can't. The king forgives him, right? And he forgives his debt. But it's obviously not because he's been persuaded by this man. Okay, I'll let you go, get to work, and start paying this thing off. He knows just as well as this guy. Well, he knows probably what the other guy doesn't know. There's no way I'm going to get my seven and a half, $7.2 billion dollars that's a loss for me. The king isn't persuaded. The king, it says, right, he has pity on the man. The king is merciful. He says, I will forgive your debt. Which is to say, you don't have to pay me back. Uh, I will absorb the cost. You don't owe me anything. I'll take the hit so you don't have to. Right? This is the way that forgiveness works. Okay, forgiveness is costly. It always costs somebody something. You break something or you go into debt, somebody's got to pay for it uh, in order for there to be forgiveness. You know, when I was a kid, maybe about five years old, um, a friend of mine named Michael came over to my house to play. Uh, and we were playing inside. Uh, we got bored. And so we went outside, still sort of look, walking around the house looking for something to do. And then I had this terribly bad idea. I saw my parents' blue Volvo station wagon parked in our gravel driveway, and I was like, I know a game we could play. Let's see who could be the first person to break a window in the car. I'm not kidding. I'm, I'm, this is the truth. I, this happened. So like, I kind of drew like a line in the, like, in the rocks, and I was like, Don't, can't cross the line. No cheating. Right? And we reached down to the gravel driveway and we picked up stones and we started throwing them at my parents' car. Car rocks were hitting the side, pinging off the side, making dents, like ding, ding, ding. But finally, I won the game. And one of the rocks that I had smashed through the car. Now, I don't remember what I said when my parents came out and surely I think it was the sound of breaking glass that sent my mom and my dad running outside to see what was going on. I don't know if I was like, Mom, I won. <laughs> to which they're like, no, you lose. <laughs> I don't know what I said. I don't really remember what they said. But one thing I remember is that they forgave me. Um, you know, in order for this, and here's what I mean by that. It, it, certainly, they sent Michael home, and I had to go to my room. But in the driveway, sitting in the driveway, was a blue Volvo station wagon that had hundreds and maybe thousands of dollars that had been done to it. Um, and that, the cost of those damages, the damages itself, they weren't just going to magically disappear. Somebody, if in order for that car to be fixed, in order for that car to be restored, you know, brought back to what it was before we touched it with those rocks, either I was going to have to pay for it or my parents were going to pay for it. But somebody had to pay. And the reason that my parents, because I didn't have to do you know, uh, chores for the rest of my life as like from the time I was like five till 15 uh, in order to pay off this debt, um, since I didn't have to do that because my parent, parents forgave me, what that actually meant is that they said, I will pay the cost, you don't have to. Even though you broke it, we will buy it. 
even though you inflicted the damages, we'll pay for it. Right? I was forgiven. Like the debt was canceled. You know, somebody wrongs you. Maybe you hear uh, somebody's, yeah, Josh. I'm not saying that's what they should do every time. I mean, there's definitely teachable moments where it's like, hey, you broke it. You need to take action and responsibility for this. And <laughs> yeah, right? Uh, this is not a, a lesson in parroting so much as a, a lesson in undeserved grace. Like, it was well within my, my parents' right. They, they could have asked that, right? That would have been just. In that situation, it would have been perfectly just to say, John, you broke this car. You need to work it off. You need to pay for it. But that's not what they did. Um, I got off scot-free. I mean, I I'm certainly was taught it was a teachable moment. I mean, they taught me you don't throw rocks at cars. You don't break. But in the end, I didn't have to pay for it. I, and I think that's the point, right? My parents, my parents paid for it, not me. And because of that, and then I got to go off free. Right, I wasn't in their debt. Um, but here's a situation. I mean, it's like we, we, it, we can think of it in terms of like tangibles breaking, but what happens when a friend of yours uh, is caught saying something really mean or nasty behind your back, or you look at their text and you see, oh my gosh, they've been texting about me, and it's really rude. Maybe you've had that experience. You know, in this, ex in this instance, there's not real monetary damages that I've done, but there is real hurt, right? There is real pain. Like, damage has been done, in this case, to your relationship. But what are you going to do? You really have two options. Either you can, you can make them pay for their, for their hurt, or you can absorb the cost of the pain. You can make them pay. You can do to them what they did to you. They gossiped about you behind your back. You're going to gossip about them behind theirs. They slandered you. I'm going to slander them. Tit for tat, right? An eye for an eye. You can withdraw your friendship. You can inflict a cost that way. This, is, this costs you my friendship, right? The cost of the, the gossip was me. We're no longer friends. Right? You can do that. Or you can forgive. If you decide to forgive this person, right, this friend of yours who's done this to you, it doesn't mean that the hurt magically disappears. Forgiveness doesn't mean that you don't feel any more pain. And it doesn't mean forgetting. Often you hear those two things put together, forgive and forget. But that's not the true nature of forgiveness. Forgiveness doesn't mean forgetting. Forgiveness means absorbing the cost. I don't forget. I'm just, I remember, but I'm not going to make you pay for it. You know, this week um, I um, have been reading a lot about stories of forgiveness, a lot about stories uh, of reconciliation. And if you just type in those two things, forgiveness and reconciliation, no doubt what will eventually pop up on your browser, probably near the top, is um, our stories of forgiveness and reconciliation that have come uh, out of Rwanda uh, in the wake of the genocide. 
you all probably know about it, the stories are horrific, right? Uh, millions of people killed uh, in the most brutal of ways, often with machetes, um, with bare hands. Men and women uh, who've lost sons and daughters and mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles, uh, oftentimes to the persons who live right next door. But what is amazing uh, about that story is not just the depths of human depravity, but also the incredible forgiveness that has come out of that, that nation too. People who uh, found within found the, the resources, the strength to be able to say to their the murderers of, of family members, I forgive you. How do you forget something like what happened? Like how do you forget the murder of your child? Or how do you forget the murder of, of a loved one? You can't. I mean, it's a, you, you just don't forget those sorts of things. But these people were able to forgive. Forgiveness meant that they weren't going to lord that sin. They weren't going to lord that crime over that person any longer. They're like, yes, you did it, but I'm not going to uh, define you by this anymore. This isn't your destiny. This isn't like your future. Yeah, you did this, but I'm not going to define you by it. I'm not going to make you, I'm not going to pay it back. I'm not going to exact revenge. I'm going to absorb the cost. I'll take it. Like there's a debt that you have created, a debt that can never be paid back. I can't get my loved one back in this instance. There's no way you could ever bring that back. You can never pay it back. But I, I will absorb the cost, and I won't exact it from you. That's what it means to forgive. And when you realize, like, oh, my gosh, <laughs> what he is talking about, like uh, forgiveness being costly, this is not easy stuff. This is incredibly hard, and it's incredibly painful. Like, forgiveness, friends, is not easy. It's one of the hardest things to do. It hurts like hell. And in fact, that's exactly what Jesus paid, right, in order to win our forgiveness. He experienced hell so we don't have to. Because you see, like the servant in this story, we have racked up a huge debt. Every single day we sin, right? Every single day we're like that five-year-old version of myself, right? Picking up stones, small ones, big ones, and we are throwing them. We are breaking windows. We are denting cars. Only the cars, the windows, right? We're throwing stones at God. We're throwing stones at each other. We're throwing stones at the world that God has made, denting things and breaking things. And this is happening every single day. You do it by the words that you say, the ways that you objectify people, right? You do it by, with your indifference. Sins of commission as well as omission, things that we've talked about in Bible study this week. The good that you should have done but didn't do, you've broken something. And the, the things that you shouldn't have done but you did, right? Breaking stuff. We do it. And we do this over the course of a lifetime. And in so doing, we have racked up a debt. We have broken so many things. Um, that we've racked up a debt that we could never pay back. Right? It's huge. It's a massive, massive debt. 
And God says the only, the wages of it all, the wages of your sin is death. That's the only thing that would come close to being able to pay it back is your life. But here's the thing. God says, I will forgive it. I will forgive you. You say, why? And it's because he loves us. Because he wants to be reconciled to us. But how? How can you forgive us? And here is what the Bible says is how. how this is how he does it. The Bible says that God, the Son of God, became a human being. Okay, he was born of the Virgin Mary. And this child was given the name Jesus, which means God saves. That was his name. Hey, there goes God saves. Right? And in his life, Jesus lived a perfect life. Right? In all the places that you and I failed, Jesus did not. In all the places that you and I fail, he succeeded. He was the perfect man. And he was the only one since the garden to have that who could claim such a thing. I lived a perfect life. I didn't sin, not once. And here's why this is significant. Because Jesus dies an ignoble death on a cross. And if Jesus... If Jesus didn't live a perfect life, like if he was sinful, he's not dying for our sins on a cross. He's dying for his. He's getting his just deserves, right? The penalty that he deserves. But if he lived a perfect life, he's not taking his penalty. He's taking ours. He's standing in the gap for you and for me. He is the lamb without stain or blemish whose blood can take away the sins of the world. And that is exactly what he claims to be. I am the Lamb of God, slain for the forgiveness of your sins. Jesus, the perfect man, on a cross taking our penalty. Paying down our debt. And this hurt like hell. It hurt like hell. On the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The first time these words have ever left his lips. Because the man saying it is the Son of God, the incarnate Son of God, who for all of eternity has known the love and the fellowship of his Father and the Spirit. But on the cross, right, he's experiencing cosmic estrangement. The face that had always looked down at him in love and smiling is no longer facing him but away. He can't stand to look at his disfigured, sinful son, right? Taking our sins upon himself, right? Jesus, the Son of God, experiencing cosmic estrangement, experiencing separation, right? Experiencing hell, suffering the penalty for our sins, right? Getting what we deserve. As I said, he experienced hell, so we don't have to. Forgiveness, friends, is costly. It always is. And it's especially the case when we think about our own forgiveness. How is it that I can be forgiven? This is how. God paid down our debt, right? 
so that we could be forgiven, so that we could go free. This brings us to our second point. If forgiveness is costly, and it is, right, forgiveness also changes you, which is to say, it, at least it ought to. Forgiveness changes you, at least, right, it ought to. There are so many examples that I could give of the transformative power of forgiveness. The problem isn't finding them. The problem is sifting through them all and finding, oh, which one is the best one to share with you tonight. Um, I'll share two of my favorites, though there's many, many I could share. The first comes from the famous play, the famous novel, now musical, now movie, uh, Les Miserables. Has anybody seen this movie or watched this play? Most. It's incredible, right? Uh, if you haven't, go get it on Netflix or Amazon or something right, and watch this movie. It's great. And, but it's a story really about uh, a man. It, it's, focused, it's centered uh, primarily around, around a man named Jean Valjean. Uh, Jean Valjean uh, was sentenced to prison, and he served 19 years in prison for stealing a loaf of bread. I mean, it's a pretty severe sentence for a crime like this, but he's in, 19, he's in prison for 19 years. He tries to escape. He finally uh, is set free. He's marked as an ex-con. Right? He has the tattoo uh, on his arm, forever identifying him. This man is a criminal. Right? This man did wrong, right? tattooed on his body. And consequently, he can't find a place to eat. He can't find a place to get a drink. He can't find a place to stay. Nobody wants him. He's a desperate man. He's a bitter man. He's angry. And if you met him on the street, you'd be frightened of him. It's not a good, like, he's hardened. But a bishop and a church has mercy on Jean Valjean. And he gives him shelter. Uh, and he gives him an evening meal. But in the middle of the night, Valjean steals the bishop's silverware and he, and he hits the road and he runs. He doesn't get very far. Police apprehend him uh, and they check his, uh, his body and they find that he has all the silverware on him. And they're like, there's no way this guy earned this. This guy stole this. And so they take him back to the bishop's house and they ask him, hey, did this guy stay with you? Did this, is this the man who stole your silver? And in a moment of beautiful, lavish, undeserved grace, the bishop looks at him and says, why did you go so soon? You left in such a hurry. You forgot to take these things, these candlesticks with you. You left the best behind. And the cops here and they're like, what? He's like, oh yeah. He forgot this too. It gives me goosebumps. I, mean, just don't, I don't know if you can see. They're there. A debt is canceled for this man. A sin is forgiven. And mercy is shown to someone who does not deserve it. And this radically changes Jean Valjean's life. His life from here on out is never the same. It's forever different. He becomes a good man. Here's what he sings in the song at this very moment. Okay, and I want you to hear these words. For I had come to hate the world, this world that always hated me. Take an eye for an eye. Turn your heart into stone. 
This is all I have lived for. This is all I have ever known. One word from him and I'd be back beneath the lash upon the rack. Instead, he offers me my freedom. I feel my shame inside me like a knife. He told me that I had a soul. How does he know? What spirit comes to move my life? Is there another way to go? I am reaching, but I fall, and the night is closing in. As I stare into the void, to the whirlpool of my sin, I'll escape now from the world, from the world of Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean is nothing now. Another story must begin. Forgiveness, my friends, changed Jean Valjean. Right? In forgiving him, the bishop gave him a new lease on life. He didn't have to go back to that old way. Here was a new way he could go. You are not defined by your sin. You are not defined by that sin that is tattooed on your arm. Another story must begin. This radical act of grace and mercy, it changed this man from the inside out. That is one story, and it's a powerful one. But here's another one, right? This one from real life. You can hear this interview, by the way. What am I about to tell you in NPR? If you, if you come to me, I'll tell you. Um, you can Google these names. It's a guy named O'Shea Israel and a woman named Mary Johnson. Okay, when O'Shea Israel was 16 years old, he got into an argument with Larumian Bird, who at that time was 20. You're at a party, you've gotten a fight, and O'Shea Israel pulls out a gun and he shoots him dead. Kills him. And this is Larumian uh, was Mary Johnson's only son. O'Shea is arrested, he's tried, he's sentenced, and he's sent to prison. Now for 12 years, Mary Johnson struggled to forgive O'Shea. But in 2005, 12 years after her son's murder, she went to prison to talk to this man who had murdered her son. And here's an excerpt from that interview that you can go and listen to, and I recommend you do. Mary speaking. You didn't know my son. My son didn't know you. But we needed to get to know one another, and that's mainly what we did for two hours. We talked. O'Shea, I found out that your son's and my, my life paralleled, and we had been through some of the same things, and somehow we got crossed. And I took his life without even knowing him. But when I met you, he became human to me. When it was time to go, you broke down and started shedding tears, so I just hugged you like I would my mother. Mary, after you left, I said, I just hugged the man who murdered my son, and that's when I began to feel this movement in my feet. It moved up my legs, and it just moved up my body. When I felt it leave me, I instantly knew that all the anger and hatred and animosity I had in my heart for you for 12 years was over. I had totally forgiven you. O'Shea, being incarcerated for so long, you tend to get detached from real love from people. Sometimes I still don't know how to take receiving forgiveness from you. How do you forgive someone who has taken your only child's life? To know that I robbed you of that and you forgive me, you can't really put it into words. I served 17 years of my 25-year sentence, and since I got out, I see you almost every day. Here's the thing. After getting out of prison, he moved in right next door to Mary Johnson. They became neighbors on purpose. Okay. Although I can never replace what has taken from you, I can never fill that void. I can do the best that I can to be right there for you. I didn't want you to wonder what this guy was doing since he got out of prison. 
I admire you for being brave enough to offer forgiveness and for being brave enough to take that step. It motivates me to make sure that I stay on the right path. Mary, I know it's not an easy thing to talk about, us sitting here looking at each other right now, so I admire that you can do this. O'Shea, regardless of how much you see me stumble out here, you still believe in me. You still have the confidence that I'm going to do the right thing, and you still tell me to keep moving forward no matter what. Mary, you know, I didn't see Larumian graduate, but you're going to college, and I'll be able to see you graduate. I didn't see him get married, but hopefully one day I'll be able to experience that with you. Our relationship is beyond belief. I agree. I love you, lady. I love you too, son. She sounds like Jesus to me. You know, forgiveness, the kind of forgiveness that the priest showed Jean Valjean, and the kind of forgiveness that Mary showed O'Shea, the kind of forgiveness the king shows the servant, and the kind of forgiveness that God shows us, it is meant to change us. It is meant to transform us. It's meant to convert us, right, to save us. And that is why there's something that is so grotesque, friends, in the way the servant treats one of his peers. It's meant to bother you. It's meant to upset you as much as it upset the other fellow servants when they saw it. Because here is this man. He's been forgiven this infinite debt, a debt that he can never pay off. He has been given a new lease on life. You do not have to go into slavery. Your wife doesn't have to go into slavery. You can still live in your house, right? You can keep all of your things. You're forgiven. And what does he do? When he sees somebody who owes him, what is it? How many denarii? A hundred. He squeezes him and he seizes him, right? And he says, pay what you owe. He says, please have mercy on me. I, I, I will, I'll try and back, pay you back. No. And he throws him into prison until this man, uh, until his debt is paid back. The master rightly uh, is upset, right? His fellow servants see what's taken place. They're greatly distressed. They go and report to their master all that's taken place. And his master summons him and says, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you asked me, because you pleaded with me, and I did it. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had you? That's a rhetorical question. How do you know that you've been forgiven by God? You know this when you start forgiving other people. And it's important that you notice the order of things. Because we so often get this mixed up and screw this up. We think, oh, if I forgive other people, then God will forgive me. But friends, that's not how this goes. 
That's not the order of things. This man has been forgiven, and therefore he ought to forgive. The king did not forgive this servant because his servant was merciful. He didn't forgive him because he had canceled all his other, all the other debts that people owed him. No, he forgave him. And it was on the basis of that that he should have forgiven other people. The rule is not if you are a forgiving person, then God will forgive you. The rule is God has forgiven you, therefore forgive. Those who've been forgiven much, forgive much. And those who think they've been forgiven little, forgive little. That's the rule. This is the test. How do you know you've been forgiven? Do you forgive? Forgiveness is costly, and it is powerful. Mahatma Gandhi said, rightly, only the strong can forgive. Forgiveness is not a weak man's sport. It's not something weak people do. Only the strong can do it. But where are you going to get the strength to forgive? It's only, I think, when you realize that you have been forgiven. The strength to forgive comes when you realize Jesus has forgiven all of my sins. He has raised me from death into life. I have a new lease on life. And you do. But what are you going to do with it? Are you going to forgive much? Or are you going to forgive little? Forgiveness costs. Forgiveness changes. Let's pray.